0: We've seen the life of Jesus from the beginning. Um, we've witnessed his miracles through Scripture. We've, we've seen him call his disciples. We've seen him spend three and a half years with his disciples. And uh, those three and a half years conclude with this very intimate time. Uh, the Last Supper, where Jesus spends this, these moments with his disciples. And he really breathes into them, kind of these, these last thoughts. And after this Last Supper, he and the disciples begin to march towards the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus goes from spending those moments with his disciples to, to spending some time with his Father in prayer, and with that little interaction there. And then after that, Jesus is arrested in the garden there, and that's where Judas betrays him. Jesus is arrested. If you remember the story, that's when, when um, Peter, I love Peter. Peter's going to be kind of the star of this Sunday and next Sunday's message. But Peter, um, prior promise, Jesus, like, Jesus tells him, listen, I'm going and you all can't come with me. And Jesus, or Peter's like, no, I, I will die for you. And sometimes we, we give Peter, um, we, we disrespect Peter, I think. Um, and, and so often we, we look down upon Peter. One of the things we can't forget is even though he will go on and he will deny Christ three times, what we can't forget though is in that garden when those soldiers come into the garden to arrest Jesus, it wasn't just a, a group of a few guys. Okay, it was a Roman cohort, which meant there were over 600 Roman soldiers. Okay, 600 Roman soldiers that show up along with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and and these religious leaders. So who knows how many people there but there are a lot of people, and it's Jesus and the 12 disciples. And in the midst of that, when they go to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his dagger, and he cuts off the ear of the one sent by the high priest. And so we know Peter, I mean, Peter was passionate. Peter wanted to protect Jesus, and he was willing to give his life. As he goes and whacks the ear off, I mean, that was a death sentence for Peter. Jesus obviously goes, then he heals, puts the ear back on, his, on Malchus's head and goes on. And from there, we have Jesus going on these mock trials. And those trials, they can find no fault in him, but their religious leaders will not give up. Jesus is tortured. He's mocked, beaten. And ultimately we'll be put on a cross and hung and die for one sole purpose, and that was to be the sacrifice of our sins, to do something that we and ourselves could not do. What is so amazing about our story and what separates our story, our faith journey, from all other faiths, is the one that we worship didn't stay in a tomb. But three days later, like we celebrate on Easter, he arose. So Jesus comes back to life, and as we get into John chapter 21, Jesus has already died on the cross been buried and risen again. Uh, We sang that song, Christ is Risen, this morning. And so we find ourselves going into John chapter 21, we're going to look this morning at the first uh, 14 verses, and then next week we're going to finish the chapter off. So I'm going to read this passage, and we're going to try and break it down a little bit. So John chapter twenty one, starting in verse one, it says, After this Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Verse four says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, Heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out of, on land, they saw a charcoal fire in, in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. and Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish that you have just caught." So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there was so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, um, this morning... As we begin to worship you through your word, God, I pray that you work in us corporately, but more importantly, Lord, I pray that you work with us and in us individually. God, I pray that you soften our hearts, open our eyes and our ears. I pray that your word receives all the glory this morning. God, the worship music was great. And we were blessed to have such talented people lead us. But church is never meant to be about a group performing. It's always meant to be centered around you, focused on you. And while our worship team did such a great job tuning our hearts and preparing us, it's not for my words, God, but for your word. And so may everything that is said this morning may be faithful to your text. May we not add anything to your word. God, may you change our lives today. May we all leave this place this morning changed people. So Holy Spirit, work in a mighty, mighty way. Send your son's beautiful and precious in the holy name we pray, amen. It seems as if this story almost comes full circle. Here we have this story of seven of the disciples, and they find themselves in a very similar or familiar backdrop. They, they are at the Sea of Tiberias, um, the Sea of Galilee, Fishing. You know, seven of the 12 disciples that Jesus called were fishermen. I don't think that was by accident. Jesus seemed to have been inclined to those people. And I think there's good reason for that. A fisherman had to be skilled enough to navigate those waters when it was calm, with no wind, and when the storms arose. They had to work together as a team they'd be willing to take orders from each other they had to work hard and many times it was the sheer force of will that would accomplish their task peter is the leader of the pack and we've seen peter in our journey through the gospel of john do some amazing things and some not so amazing things See, Peter's one of those characters that most of us can relate with. And so as we look at this story, we see this. Jesus um, reveals himself to these disciples. And so we go to the backdrop. What are they doing? And and they mention five disciples by name, and then they just mention two unnamed disciples. And we have no idea who they are. I have no idea why John didn't include their names. Obviously, John was there. John knew who the disciples were. This past week, when I was reading and preparing, I was looking through one of the commentaries that I typically use, and John Corson speculated or suggested that maybe John didn't reveal those two names to give us the opportunity to place ourselves in that boat with these renegade fishermen. Because you see, these guys, these disciples were not where they were supposed to be. If you were to look back in your Bible to Matthew 28, Jesus gave them specific directions to go to the mountain in Galilee. But these disciples choose a different course. If we think about the situation, if we think about what's going on, we have to remember their lives have been turned upside down. Right? They gave up everything. Right? They were fishing when Jesus came, saw them, and called them. They left it all to follow Jesus for three and a half years. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was coming. They believed Jesus was the King of Kings. But they also believed that Jesus would be the one who would restore Israel and be the earthly king. So all the things that they had thought of, all the things that they had hoped were buried in that tomb with Jesus. Jesus comes back and they're amazed, but it was different. Prior to the cross, they were with Jesus day in, day out. They had complete access to Jesus. They saw him. They could feel him. They could touch him. They could talk with him. They would hang out with him. They had full access to Jesus, but after the cross, they don't. The very last verse that we read this morning in verse 14, we realized that, that was, this was the third time he had revealed himself to them after his death they didn't have the absolute contact that they had with jesus prior and the holy spirit had not yet come and so now you have these guys who are confused life has changed they've been an emotional roller coaster and peter rather than doing what he was supposed to do decides to slip into something familiar something that he knew, something that would be somewhat comfortable, fishing. It's amazing to me in that a while we don't know exactly when this occurred, the very beginning of this passage doesn't give us a clear timetable, but it was probably somewhere around a month after he had risen from the tomb. The disciples knew what Judas, or what Peter had done. The disciples knew that he had denied Christ three times. But yet he still was their leader. Rather than go to the mountain, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And the rest jump aboard. They take off. They go fishing. It's interesting that we read that when they went fishing, it was at night. Um, As a child, teenager, I remember having a curfew. I mean, you guys remember having curfews? Some of you, Yeah? yeah? We had curfews. And while we had curfews, most of us didn't like the curfews, right? Because we always had that friend. Like if your curfew was 11, you always had that friend who either didn't have a curfew or it was like 12. So it always complicated things. Right? And whenever you'd go complain to mom or dad, and usually it was you'd complain to dad first because you thought you could get something out of dad. That's what my kids do. And then if you don't get the answer you like with one parent, then you go to the other parent. And I often remember um, when I would complain or ask or beg and plead. I was often reminded that nothing good would happen that late at night. Um, As a parent now, now my kids aren't of the age that I have to give them a curfew because it's just like when dad says it's bedtime, it's bedtime. Like their curfew is like 7.30 in bed. Right? But there's a day that's coming. Unfortunately, it's quicker than I want to think about when I have to navigate curfews with my own children. And those Curfews will never be what they want. But the truth is, now that we're older, and most of us are abed way before what our old curfew was, we realize that nothing really good happens late at night, does it? It's typically when we get in most of our troubles. So Peter and the gang, they go in the boat, and they go fishing at night. Have you ever found yourself in life where you have been doing what you feel God's called you to do? Like you, you, like you, you prayed about it, and you know that God wants you to do this, and you do it, and you begin down this path. But you begin to kind of think back to the good old days. And maybe along this path that God's placed you on, you hit that rough patch and you stumble. And you kind of get to that point where there's that crossroad where you decide, do I continue on this path that I know God wants me to? Or maybe I should go back to the good old days. Peter and those disciples were on that path. They were doing what God had called them to do. But they hit these rough waters. Everything that they had tried, everything that they had built their hope and trust around had changed. They're in a a time of limbo. The one that they were following, the one that they were worshiping, the one they believed in, had left. Given a few charges... Peter finally has this thought that maybe maybe I can go back to the good old days a little bit. Maybe I can go back to something familiar. Kind of that idea where the the grass is greener on the other side. And so they go. And um, we might see in this passage the miracle of all miracles. Because these fishermen, these trained fishermen, professional fishermen, fish all night. And how much fish did they catch? You guys tell me. We read it. Zero. Zilch. Nothing. Right? And so Jesus is on shore. The disciples, they don't know it's Jesus. They're about 100 yards off. And Jesus shouts out to them, how much did you guys catch? And again, the miracle of all miracles is they say none. Like, I'm not an outdoorsman. I don't hunt or I don't fish. I don't have the patience for it. And if I did, it would force me to have to lie. But those of you who go, and I I know some of you, but we always, doesn't that fish that we catch always get a little bit bigger? And there's always that story of that one that got away. Right, it was there. I had it hooked, but last second the line snapped. It was there. It got away. But these guys they ain't mentioned none. And, and you know what I love we see so much grace and love and tenderness in Jesus in this passage. Because while the disciples were disobeying what he asked them to do. Again, remember Matthew 28, go to the mountain. They decided to go to the beach. Jesus comes to the shore. And notice in verse 8 how he refers to them. Or verse 5, I'm sorry. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? That term, children. Notice he he didn't get upset because they didn't follow the orders and say, Hey, ex-disciples or former apostles or scumbags, or whatever. He tenderly calls out to them and says, children, did you catch anything? He knew the answer. They say no. He goes on and gives them directions to take the net and cast it on the other side of the boat. And the disciples take the net and they cast it on the other side of the boat. They, they took the net some three or four feet from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat and the Bible tells us they catch this haul of fish. So many fish they couldn't even lift the net into the boat. They were three or four feet away from success. But in all their own effort, in all their own struggles, in all What they wanted to do, they missed it. They missed it all. How often do we rely on our own efforts, our own strength? I uh, have a quote here, if I can find it, from John Calvin. John Calvin made this statement. He said, if we always succeeded... When we put our hands to any labor, scarcely anyone would attribute the reward of his work to God's blessing, but all would boast of their own industry and shake hands with themselves. Isn't that true? Like if success was that easy, if success was solely built upon what we do, was solely built upon our own talents and our own abilities, and we try and get God out of the equation, we just go around giving ourselves high fives. And these disciples, trained fishermen, go back to what they think they were missing, going back to something familiar, work all night long, get nothing. Jesus shows up, says, hey guys, put the net on the other side of the boat. It wasn't that there was a man that Jesus was out there and could just see this spool of fish that they had been missing all morning or all night. Remember, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus is the creator. And it's my belief, and we can ask Jesus when we get to heaven, that Jesus created that spool of fish. And those disciples fill the net. Could you imagine that? All night long, They had been working. They were trying everything possible. Could you imagine the frustration? For me, it would have been the boredom. Then suddenly, this guy, and they have no idea who it is, says, Hey, put the boat, put the net on the other side of the boat, and it fills the net. And then finally, in that passage in verse 7, it says, Uh, The disciple whom Jesus loved. If you remember, we talked about this before. That disciple whom Jesus loved is a reference to John, the author of this gospel. John finally realizes that's Jesus. It's Jesus on the shore. And so he says something. He says, turns to Peter. Notice, the Bible tells us he turns to Peter. It says, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. And Peter... um, was an intense fisherman like everything else because the Bible says he basically stripped down to fish. Now, he had his undergarments on, but he had taken his outer jacket off and probably wrapped it around his waist as he worked all night long. And when he realized it was Jesus, he throws the jacket on, and what does he do? Start paddling to the shore? No. Peter jumps into the water and starts swimming to shore and leaves the rest of the disciples with this net full of fish to drag it in. I don't know about you guys. But I love Peter. You guys remember the miracle when Jesus walked on water? You guys remember that? There's a storm going on. Jesus walks on water. The disciples are in a boat and they see Jesus. First, they think he's a ghost. Then they realize who it is. And what does Peter do? He begs to join him. He begs, Let me walk on water to meet you, Jesus. And Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk on water to Jesus. Now we always, typically, look down on Peter because he takes his eyes off of Jesus and begins to sink. But I don't see any other disciples getting out of the boat. I don't see anybody else with that much faith to even start down that journey. See, Peter loved Jesus passionately. And I'm quite sure from the moment after he realized he denied Christ for the third time, he was haunted by that he knew what he did he was sorry for what he did he was upset and mad at himself for doing it no doubt and jesus arrives and so he jumps in the water and starts swimming and races there what's amazing to me i think is when he shows up on shore and jesus is there the bible reveals a few things to us One of the things I love about the Gospel of John is John throws in these little tidbits of information. And if we read over it so quickly, it means nothing to us. But when we take a a minute to just kind of stop and consider it, verse 9 says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Okay, that means very little to us right here, doesn't it? Next week... When we conclude this chapter, we're going to talk about the restoration of Peter. But the last time in the Gospel of John that a charcoal fire was mentioned was when Peter denied Christ for the third time. Peter comes back and there's a charcoal fire once again. This time it was made by the hands of Jesus. Not only do we see that charcoal fire there, Jesus has fish and bread. And he invites the rest of the guys to bring some of their fish and add it to him. But you guys know what's important about that? Is this. Jesus didn't need the disciples to catch that net of fish to bring the food back to them in order for them to eat. Jesus had already prepared the food for them. Often, I'm guilty of thinking um, that I'm going to do something that God really needs. As if he's dependent upon my talents or abilities. That my hard work will grow Redemption Hill. I would say my eloquent preaching, but we all know that's not going to happen. But there are times when, when I think, man, I got to work hard. I got to do this. And it doesn't mean that we don't work hard. It doesn't mean that we don't put all of our efforts into it. But the reality is this God's the one that brings the blessings, He's the one that's prepared the things for us. What's cool is He allows us to become part of it, He allows us to enter into it. We have the joy when we, at the end of the service, we do our tithes and offerings. We have the ability of giving a small portion back to Christ, but back to Jesus. 10% is what the Bible typically uses. Old Testament refers to a tithe as 10%. Um, Sometimes that 10% isn't easy. Most of us live paycheck to paycheck. And giving 10% is hard. And sometimes when we do that, we think, well, wow, I mean, He needs my money. No, he doesn't. If God wants things to happen, it will happen. But he allows us, he allows us to begin to enter the equation. He allows us to have the joy of giving. Um, For those of you who are, this is your first time, or maybe it's your first time in a long time. We met at Deer Lake for a year, actually 13 months. We started meeting here the second week of November. And to some who maybe walk in for the first time, you think, oh, this is a nice, quaint little place. Um, But for those of us who've been along the whole journey, um, God allowed us to enter in and bring our fish to the grill. And so... We can walk in here and we can think of those days when we came and we helped paint the walls. We can think of the days when we came and um, our retired, guys, like this is, isn't this a beautiful stage up here, guys? Isn't it? Like the retired men of our church built the stage. Like that's awesome, right? That's them bringing their fish to the grill. <laughs> Downstairs we have people that are working with the children, and if you've never experienced chaos in your life, I would encourage you to go downstairs and work with the children. Like, There's a reason why I preach on Sunday mornings so I don't have to work downstairs with the children. But they, they do that week in and week out. They come prepared. And, and moms and dads, one of the greatest things I've had the opportunity say, of, of feedback that I've received is when a parent comes to me and says, you know what? My kids are learning something at church. They're coming home, and and I'm able to ask them questions. And they're quizzing me. We don't use our time with our children as a babysitting service. That's a time for our children to learn about Jesus Christ. That's our opportunity. And so, so this place, we don't worship this house And we know it wasn't our own talents and abilities that brought us to this house. It was a blessing from God. But we have a lot of joy and excitement because God allowed us to be part of it. He allowed us to bring our fish to the grill. But it's not a one-time deal. It's a continual thing. A continual thing. So when we do our tithes and our offerings, God doesn't need our 10%. but We get the joy of knowing do we understand that God's given us 100% of everything that we have and a 10% to give back to him is so little. It's interesting. Um, in verse 11, as Jesus tells Peter to go get the fish, verse 11 tells us, so Simon Peter went back, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish. says 153 of them. And although there was so many, the net was not torn. Um, you know, um, I think scholars as a whole are very confusing. Like, I'm a simple person. Um, and when I read scholars, sometimes it's way over my head. And then sometimes, have you ever walked away like reading somebody, and then you're like, I think that's all hogwash. I think they just made all that up to make themselves look smart. Right? Have, you ever, have you ever read that? Okay, so um, this week I'm going through this, and I'm trying to think, well, I wonder what the significance of 153 fish are. So I'm reading these different scholars' um, commentaries. One commentary writes that Jerome, one of our early church fathers, um, stated that the Greek zoologists of the day said that there were 153 known fish and so as Jesus performs this miracle, the net's filled, they bring the net back. There was one of every fish that was known on earth there in the net. And it represents um, the, um, how every tribe, how every nation has access to Christ and all that stuff. Which it sounds, it sounds that sounds great, doesn't it? I don't know that I believe it. <laughs> Another commentary said this, check this out. That the triangular number, or 17 is a triangular number of 153. You take 10, which is the number for law, and 7, which is the number for grace, and so that 153 represents the people who came to Christ through the law and or the grace. I had to figure out what triangular number of 17 even meant. And then I'm thinking, I don't think it's that complicated. What I think ends up happening in this story is this. And maybe this is what Jerome mentioned. Maybe this is those who think the triangular number, it's their belief. This is my personal belief. This miracle is very similar to another miracle that occurred. When Jesus does the same thing. Fishermen, the, the disciples have been fishing all night and... Um, They catch nothing. He tells them to cast the net. They cast the net. In that miracle, they caught so many fish. The Bible tells us the net was torn. Here, in in, in that miracle, Jesus teaches a lesson about evangelism to his disciples. It's in that lesson that he teaches those men that they were to become fisher of men. Okay, it's a it's evangelism driven. And I think in this particular miracle, Jesus is teaching Peter and John a different lesson. Somewhat of a pastoral shepherding lesson. When they empty the net, there's 153 fish and the net is not torn. And Jesus, I believe, is, is illustrating to these men that evangelism is more than just filling a net. But, that every one of those fish in that net were accounted for. And one day when the Great Supper occurs, when Christ returns, every one of those who truly believed in Christ and accepted Him as their Lord and Savior will be brought up to heaven with Him. No one will be lost. The net won't break. Everyone will be accounted for. I think what he's teaching these men is there's a difference in just going out and telling people. That's good. But we need to shepherd and tend to the people. Now we live in a day and age that... um, Oftentimes, we expect the pastor to do all the shepherding and tend to the entire flock. I don't believe that's what Jesus was trying to express to the disciples. We're all called to shepherd, we're all called to tend to the flock. As a church family, Redemption Hill Church. Um, for those who are visiting, I don't want to scare anybody off. But those who are here, and much of our core group is here, um, we as a church body all need to pitch in and help tend to the flock. Like we all, we we should know when people are absent. It's not a matter of taking attendance every week and, and sending them a, a, a naughty note saying, "Why weren't you here?" and trying to guilt them back but we all should tend to the flock. We should all look when people are missing. We should reach out to them and see what ways we can help. That's what, one of the things that why church is so important. We're a faith family. I almost never refer to us as a congregation. Always, almost exclusively, I refer to us as a faith family. We need each other. We need Christ. Christ is the father of this faith family. And we need each other. We need to look for ways to help each other guys if if the church is going to solely depend on me <clears throat> the shepherd, then we may as well cut the attendance of this morning in a third i can 't do it all my, by myself, but what 's amazing about this church in visitors i let me brag on our faith family. You all get this. you understand that that we all collectively tend to the flock. How often have one of you maybe had a baby, which is happening a lot these days, to come home from the hospital with this precious gift that God's blessed you with, and then within a few short days start having people from church show up at your door with meals? It's a little thing, isn't it? For most of us, it's, it's nice, it's great. But for that person who, whose life has changed, that shows them that there's a family or families or a church that loves and cares for them. Um, this past week, you know, we as a faith family came and celebrated and cheered. For a football game and um, and I, I, don't, I, I don't I always try and almost refrain from some of this I don't ever want us to think like we're, we're bragging about who comes to our church and who doesn't come to our church my intent in saying this is not that but we're blessed that we have some families that, that are part of our core faith family of our church that coach at Florida State now, um, I'm, I love sports. And I've told you guys, like my heart bleeds maize and blue. I'm a Michigan guy. And the good Lord, I mean, pff, miracles happen. We got a new coach. Those are good. Watch out next year. We're going to come have a Michigan party. Um, I love sports. I, I love to cheer. Um, you all know that um, we have a, a son, we have three girls, and then God gave us a boy. And so as a parent, as a dad, it, things change, right? When you look at your daughters one way, and then all of a sudden you have a son, and and it's just different. And I remember being the guy that would sit in front of the TV and yell and scream and whatever. And that's part of being a fan, isn't it? I mean, we celebrate, we get upset and all that stuff with those games. But as a result of some friendships that I've established in the last year, two, and for some, I don't even know. I've lost track. Um, my perception has changed. And so we all show up and we, we are cheering for this game. And it obviously didn't go the way we had hoped, right? And... um. Later that night, you know, you get home and you just start looking at stuff, and all of a sudden you start seeing all this stuff that's on social media, all this garbage, and pardon my language, but crap, that people are saying, and it's not even just directed at the team as a whole, but at individuals, and all of a sudden you start seeing some of your friends' names mentioned. Um that hurts over a football game. And then I had to sit back and think, let's see here. They won 29 in a row, and they lost in a bowl game. Memory serves me right. That was their first loss of the season. Everybody else in the bowl game had already lost a game. Not trying to keep score. But what we forget is... um, Behind that person, typically, there's a family. And, and one of those guys, I, I remember I talked with him, and, and he told me before, he's like, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. I don't listen to ESPN. I don't read the newspaper. And as guys, like, we're pretty good at those kind of things, aren't we? We, we, can, um, we can put our energies into other things and move on. But our wives and our children don't have that luxury. And they see dad's name in newspapers, Twitter feeds, Facebook, websites. See, it's it's moments like that that we need family, that we need those people that can come alongside us and help lift us up. That's why church is so important. We glorify God, yes, that Christ is at the center of everything. And because Christ is at the center of everything, we have the strength and the ability to do those things. I had to hold Courtney back that night because thing she saw, she's trying to... <laughs> I'm just like, Courtney, you can't say those things. <laughs> we'll let Bonnie do that. <laughs> but we need each other. We need each other. Not that this church is ever meant to be a self-help organization. That's not it. Christ called fishermen to be an integral part of his team here on earth. And those fishermen, as we said at the beginning, they have the ability to navigate through calm waters and rough waters. They have the ability to work together as teams to accomplish goals. Christ didn't choose those men by accident. And I believe he teaches us a lesson as a faith family. There'll be calm waters in life, but there are going to be a lot of storms. But we're a team. And we're going to work together. We're going to help each other for God's glory. So we can accomplish what He's called us to do. Next week, we're going to look at, to me, what I, it was one of the most powerful parts of Scripture. And, and I'm going to be honest with you guys. Next week, there's going to be tears coming from my eyes. Because we see Peter restored in his relationship with Christ. We see this man of great passion. We see this man who, who gave up everything. He was so, He was the kind of guy that, that would do before he thought we see the grace and the love of a Savior. In one of his last few occurrences, pull him aside and sit by that charcoal fire. And we have a chance to see a very intimate, intimate conversation. I hope that you're able to come back again next week as we finish the Gospel of John. In just a moment, our worship team is going to come up as we conclude. This passage that we looked at this morning can speak in a lot of different ways. I don't know where you're at individually. There are some here this morning, I would venture to say, that at one point they were going on the path that God had called them to go to. They were doing exactly, their relationship with him was was great. I mean, they were were doing their devotions, they were spending time in prayer, they were faithful in church, they were faithful, all these things. They were going exactly where God had called them until they hit that rough patch. And in that rough patch decided, maybe I ought to go back. Maybe I will go back to what I was doing before. Maybe, maybe that familiar thing is where I need to be. Some of you, maybe you're at that crossroad right now where you're just like, man, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, but that grass looks pretty good over there. Maybe I should just take a TV time out for this and go back and kind of enjoy some of this for a little while. One of the things we see in this story is that's what Peter and those guys do. They try and go back to what they did before and it failed. All that stuff in the back of their minds that they thought that they would enjoy that worked all night long and didn't even get a nibble. And when they get back to Jesus, the fish are all there. Maybe for some this morning, You've never even started this journey. You've heard about Jesus. Maybe you've read about him in the Bible. Maybe you've watched a TV movie or something about him. You know a little bit about him, but you've never accepted him as your Savior. As the worship team comes up and leads us in our time of invitation, we view this as a very intimate time. We don't ask for people to come forward. I'm not going to meet you in the middle. We want you, as we sing this song, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. When we complete the song, well, I'm going to have everyone bow their heads, close their eyes. I'll ask a few questions, and that will be the time for a response. But use this as a very important time. A time that... um, that you can contemplate, what's God calling me to do? Where am I on this faith journey? Where am I supposed to be? I know this. God's calling all of us. Everyone, doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter how old you are. God's calling you guys has something specifically prepared for you. You might be fighting against it. You might be trying to get away from it. With all your work and all your effort, but know this, Jesus Christ is on the shore calling out child, children, children. How are we going to answer? How are you Going to answer. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray that you um, you work in our hearts, Holy Spirit. Um, you use this scripture, an event that happened. It was. This isn't. Cinderella. This isn't a fable that we're talking about. This is a true historical story, something that happened. And God, may it not be my personality, may it not be a story or a word that Chad spoke, but God, I beg you to use your word, your holy, inspired, inerrant word to grab a hold of our hearts and our lives. And God, I don't know where we are in our paths, in our walks. God, a room with this many people, we're on different paths, different roads. But you have a specific journey for us as a family, and us as individuals. Some are at crossroads. Some maybe have taken a time out and began to wander back. God, call us today and give us the strength and the discernment and the courage to be like Peter, to just jump out of the boat and swim to you. God, work in an amazing way. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.